Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Ariel Lahan at Hennepin County Library, Golden Valley. Ariel Lahan is a rising star in the realm of historical fiction. Her first forays into the popular genre include The Wife, The Maid, and The Mistress in 2014, which explores one of the most mysterious missing person cases of the 20th century, as told from the perspectives of three women who knew the victim best. The New York Times Book Review praised Lahan's woven narrative as more meticulously choreographed than a chorus line. Her 2016 follow-up, Flight of Dreams, breathes new life into the famous Hindenburg and the deadly 1937 air disaster that claimed 36 lives in rural New Jersey. Lahan's greatly anticipated 2018 release, I Was Anastasia, follows the life of Anna Anderson, an enigmatic woman who spent half a century battling to be recognized as the lost Russian princess, Anastasia Romanov. Notes publisher Doubleday, Lahan wades into the most psychologically complex and emotionally compelling territory, the nature of identity itself. I Was Anastasia hit shelves in March. Thank you very much. And thank you everyone for coming out in the cold. I am from Nashville, not originally, but I live there now, and I don't think I have seen snow in three years, probably. So this is kind of fun for me. When it snows in Nashville, everything shuts down. Nobody can drive. All this, like, if it gets cold, the schools close. So I'm very impressed with your snowfall levels. Um, like I said, thank you for coming. I'm really excited to be here tonight. I always have this moment of amazement when I stand here and do this because I was the girl, the little girl that always wanted to do this. I was the little girl that about five years old declared that I wanted to be a writer. And so I have this very surreal moment whenever I stand in front of a group of people that I'm actually doing it. I feel like to understand why I write the stories that I write, it's helpful to know where I came from in the beginning. Is anybody familiar with Taos, New Mexico? It's beautiful. Um, I have always referred to it as the hippie capital of the world. My parents settled there in the mid-1970s. I like to say that um, they were founding members of the hippie movement. My dad used to say that if you remember the 60s, you didn't actually experience them. I'm glad to say that by the time 
I came along and my siblings came along. Everyone was done experimenting all together. But they moved to Taos. And if you go visit Taos, you will probably take a little day trip and visit the Gorge Bridge. It's this enormous bridge that spans a 900-foot gorge. It's breathtaking, and it is the second largest gorge in the United States, next to the Royal Gorge in Colorado. And if you pass over that bridge and you go another quarter mile, there will be a cattle guard on your left, and on the other side of that, a dirt road. You'd probably drive right by it. There is no name to the road. There's no marker that tells you where you are. But if you were to turn left on that dirt road, you would go for six miles until you reached the very end of it. And at the very end of it, there's a house where private property meets federal land. And that is the house that I grew up in. And there's no running water. There is no electricity. There is an outhouse and a greenhouse and a cistern. Like I said, parents were hippies. <laughs> but that is where I was born. And when you live in a house that does not have electricity, you don't have a television. So what we did at night when I was growing up is we read. My mother, believe it or not, would read to us by the light of a kerosene lantern. It was very Laura Ingalls. And it was very wonderful. And I grew up on stories. I grew up being read to. And I was about five years old the first time I looked at her and said, I want to do that, that thing. I don't know what it is, but I want to do that. And she's like, well, it's called writing, and if you want to do it, you can. And I bring that up because I think it's very, very, very important to remember that children believe what you tell them, and they believe what you tell them about themselves. So if you tell a child they can do something, they will believe you. And if you tell a child they can't, they will believe that as well. But my mother told me that she thought I could be a writer if I wanted to. So I began writing that young. And if you fast forward about 10 years, when I was a freshman in high school, I remember this day distinctly because it's the day that I can pinpoint as the day that changed everything and set me on this particular course. I was standing in the hallway, changing out books between classes at my locker, and a woman tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned around, and there was this very lovely, stately, older woman with silver hair and she said, Ariel, you don't know me, but I'm the creative writing teacher here. And I've heard in the teacher's lounge that you're a great writer. The other teachers have been very impressed with your essays. And I was wondering if you would like to take my creative writing class next year. And it was like somebody was handing me the keys to the kingdom to do this thing that I always wanted to do. So my sophomore year, I took her class. And about three months into the school year, she asked me to stay after class one day. And I was very concerned that I'd gotten in trouble. And she said, Ariel, we have a problem. You already know everything that I could teach you this year. Remember, my mother read to me. I think it's very important. We underestimate what you learn about writing through the process of reading and being read too. But she said she had an idea. And she asked if I would like to go in the computer lab every day for class, and I would write essays, and she would grade them, and that would be my curriculum for the year. And looking back, I don't think a teacher would have the freedom to do that now, but she did, and it changed everything, because I wrote my first short story in her class. I got my first idea for a novel in her class. And I have thought about that moment a hundred times over the last 10 years, 
because I grew up and my desire to write never changed. And it wasn't until I had my first son, my husband and I have four boys now, but it wasn't until I had my first son that I really began to seriously pursue the act of writing. And I remembered my mother and I remembered Mrs. Wilson and I always thought, well, somebody's gonna do it, it may as well be me. And thankfully, in 2014, as she said, I published my first novel. It's called The Wife, the Maid, and the Mistress. And it's based on the disappearance of a New York City judge in 1930. And then two years ago, I published my second novel called Flight of Dreams. It is about the last ill-fated flight of the Hindenburg. And then last month, this novel came out. I was Anastasia. And as she said, it is my third novel. But it's not the novel I meant to write. Because three years ago, after I finished Flight of Dreams, I was about to begin writing a novel on Alcatraz. It was based on the 1963 escape attempts. And I had the whole thing plotted. I had the entire novel researched. I had spent six months working on it. And it was a Friday afternoon, and I was be due to begin writing the next Monday. But as has happened with every book I've written, I was kind of wasting time. So I was on the internet and I was reading articles. I love reading about history. I love articles. I love reading about unsolved mysteries. And this particular day, I was reading an article on the Romanov family. And it was discussing that fateful night, Enie Katrenberg, when the entire family was taken away. But at the end of this article, I read a little bit of something that made all the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And this is a sensation I've become very familiar with over the years. And I read about how two years after the Romanov family was murdered in Ekaterinburg, a woman jumped off a bridge in Berlin. And she was dragged out of this canal and promptly arrested because in Germany at the time, suicide was illegal. So if you survive, you go to jail. <laughs> Which makes no sense on so many levels, but it's what happened to her. And they took her to the police station and she refused to speak. And she refused to give her name and they thought she was horribly traumatized, so they took her to the hospital. And a physical examination was performed there. And what the doctors found and what they recorded in her file at the time is that her body was riddled with these countless horrific scars. And the doctors noted that they looked to be bullet wounds and bayonet wounds. And it's, I mean, no spoiler if you know anything about the end of the Romanov dynasty and that night in Siberia, the Romanov family was killed with rifles and bayonets. And this poor, terrified woman was then shipped off to an insane asylum where for two years, she didn't speak, would give no explanation for why she jumped off that bridge. And at the end of that two years, she was identified for the first time as Anastasia Romanov. And that was the first time that she admitted to being so. I remember reading that article and kind of knowing immediately that I would not be writing about Alcatraz. <laughs> but I'm really stubborn and I had done a lot of work so I sent an email to my literary agent and I said, okay, we have a problem. Here's this idea that I've come up with and I think it's amazing, but I don't have time for this and you don't have time for this. 
so I need you to tell me to get back to work on the other thing we all agreed that I was going to write next. And she replied and she goes, um, I think we need to talk to your editor. And it was over then, of course. But the problem that I faced at that time is I didn't know anything about Russian history. Everyone has gaps in their education. And for me, Russian history was a very large gap. I knew about the Romanovs. I knew a little bit about the Bolsheviks. I know Russia's cold. <laughs> That's about where my knowledge ended. So I had to do what I have done every other time I've written a novel. And I had to take a deep dive into Russian history. So once again, I ordered all my research material. And over the course of several months, I probably read 50 books. I read every biography that has been written on the Romanovs in the last 50 years. I read books about their jewelry. I read books about their pets and their houses and the entire dynasty. And what I found was fascinating because we tend to think of the Romanov dynasty as a kingdom or a little, a little bit of history. But the truth is this empire, by the time the Romanovs met their end, this empire had ruled for over 300 years. Their territory grew by 55 square miles a day. It covered one-sixth of the Earth's surface. And into this family, into this dynasty, a little girl was born, and her name was Anastasia. Well, I live in Tennessee, so I say Anastasia. I think it's technically Anastasia she's not here, so we're just going to go with Anastasia. Um, and to be quite honest, her birth was met with great disappointment. She was the fourth girl when what the Romanov family really needed was a boy. They needed an heir to continue their dynasty, which they eventually got after she was born. But nobody was really all that interested in her. And it turns out she was not your very typical princess as she grew up. She climbed trees and skinned her knees and got sap in her hair and played practical jokes. She loved dirty jokes and playing tricks and tormenting her sisters. But what she loved above all else was her younger brother and his name was Alexei and he was born with hemophilia, which means he was not expected to survive to adulthood, much less have children of his own. And she was 15 years old at the point in which this novel begins. And one night, um, as she's helping two of her sisters and her younger brother recover from measles, revolution spills onto the palace grounds. She opens her window, and there are soldiers, drunk and mutinous, firing at the sky. And her whole world comes crashing down. Prior to that moment, she knew nothing but privilege and security and a father who basically ruled the world. And that night, everything ended, and the family was put on house arrest, where they remained for six months. She turned 16 years old under house arrest. And during that time, when they were not allowed to leave the palace grounds, their servants were let go. The provisional government came and sent <clears throat> soldiers to guard them. Their world was restricted. 
It, they went from this life of opulence and privilege to planting cabbages in the garden because they had to grow food if they wanted to eat. But during that time, a very, very interesting thing happened. You know, it's one of those footnotes you often hear about, but I had never seen explored in any of the research material that I read. Empress Alexander began collecting all of the family jewels, all of the crowns and the diamonds and the bracelets and the necklaces, and she began packing them away because she understood, at least on a subconscious level, that they would not be staying in their palace, that they would be sent somewhere else. And she was right. Six months into their captivity, they were all put on a train and they were sent to a place called Tobolsk in eastern Russia. It's in the marshes. They took the train as far as the train went and they took the boat for five days. And in this small military outpost, the entire family was put under house arrest again. Only their world shrank even further. They were allowed outside for a couple hours. They read, it was the dead of winter, and at night, they did something very, very interesting. Alexandra had her daughters rip open all of the seams to their clothing, specifically the corsets, the belts, the hats, anything with a thicker seam, and they began sewing those jewels into the seams of their clothing. And this is really, really important for two reasons. First, the Romanovs truly believed they were going to escape. And if they escaped, they would use these jewels as a means of financial support. But also, the fact that they did that is one of the reasons people have believed for so long that Anastasia survived, because about six months later, they were moved to a third location. It was a town called Ekaterinburg. And this is not a spoiler. Most people are familiar with the fact that on the night of July 17, 1918, the entire family was woken up in the middle of the night. They were told to get dressed, and they were led into a very damp basement on the premises where they faced a merciless firing squad. The entire family, four servants, gunned down that night. But when the smoke cleared, all four of the daughters were still alive, and it was because of those jewels that had been sewed into their clothing. It formed almost a bulletproof vest of sorts, and it was at that point that the bayonets came into play. And history has always told us that that is where their story ended. The soldiers in charge of killing the family wrote about it. Those documents were stored away in files and later revealed to the public. And we've always been told that that is where the story ended. And there's good reason to believe so. But, but, there was that woman in that canal in Berlin two years later. And that is what I was fascinated by because this woman came to be known as Anna Anderson. And for 50 years, she tried to prove her identity. She tried to prove to the world that she was Anastasia Romanov. And her case became the longest running 
court case in German history. It lasted over 50 years. And she really set the world on fire. She captured the imagination of the world because suddenly, after this huge tragedy, a woman comes and says, no, I am Anastasia and I survived. And as her claims continued, her fame grew, her numbers of supporters grew. And then something happened in 1956 that I believe set her permanently in the public consciousness. Ingrid Bergman made a film named Anastasia, and part of the film was based on the life and claims of Anna Anderson, who claimed to be Anastasia. And that year, Ingrid Bergman won an Academy Award for her portrayal in that film. And Anna Anderson went from this woman in Europe claiming to be a princess to the forefront of the world's attention. And she'd been in the newspapers quite a bit. Her, she'd been in the headlines constantly. But from that point forward, she became a legend. And one of the reasons, another one of the reasons why her claims were taken so seriously is because of a man named Gleb Botkin. Gleb Botkin was Anastasia Romanov's childhood friend, her closest friend. He was also the son of a man named Eugene Botkin, who was the Romanov family physician. Eugene Botkin went into captivity with the Romanov family, and he was killed with them on that night in 1918. And Gleb Botkin was one of the first people to find Anna Anderson when she got out of that mental institution in Berlin. And he looked at her and he said, this is my friend. This is the woman I've known my whole life. How could no one see this? And he began to fight for her. He began to plead her case basically in the court of public opinion. He hired lawyers. He appealed to the surviving family members of the Romanovs. And he put his entire life and his entire reputation on the line to prove her cause. And he had very compelling reasons to do so. Anna Anderson knew things about the family. She knew things about their childhood memories that no one could know unless they'd been there. And it was enough to convince the man who'd been Anastasia's childhood friend. But it leads to a really interesting question that kind of gets at the heart of this particular novel, is how do you prove who you say that you are who you say you are in a time where most people didn't have baby pictures, when their lives weren't chronicled on social media, when they didn't have official ID, or in many cases, birth certificates? How do you really prove who you are? I actually worry about this every time I leave the country because I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my passport and they're not gonna let me back in. But if you don't have DNA science, if you don't have facial recognition programs, how do you, how do you prove who you are? And who gets to say, who gets to be the determining factor that says, you really are Ariel Lawhon? It's fascinating. And so for me, I wanted to take those two stories and weave them together. I wanted to alternate between Anastasia Romanov under house arrest, her entire world turned upside down as her family marches toward that moment in that basement 
in Siberia. But then I wanted to take Anna Anderson and tell her story as well. But what I did in her case is instead of tell it step by step, beginning to end, I told it from the end, backward, slowly, peeling back layer by layer by layer. And whereas Anastasia's story begins that night when revolution tears Russia apart, Anna Anderson's begins on the 50th anniversary of the night she jumped off that bridge. Coincidentally, it was also the same day the appeals court in Germany finally decided her case. And we tick backwards, slowly, year by year. And there's a moment in the book where those two storylines collide. And that is when I believe we answer the question of whether Anna Anderson really was Anastasia Romanov. I like to tell people that, um, as I said, I researched a ton. I read countless books. But with the Anna Anderson biographies, I did something different. Instead of reading them beginning to end, I read them backwards, last chapter to first. I wanted to keep myself in that same mindset that I put the reader where you're a little uncertain and a little bit off balance. And here's a woman at the end of her life, and she's interacting with people she knows and loves who are important. But you, as the reader, don't know how they relate to her, and they don't, you don't know why they're important. But I knew I couldn't do that unless I was in that same headspace myself. So I moved backwards slowly through those biographies, and it helped to put the story together the way that I have it. And for years, I have been saying that writing historical mysteries is a bit like wrestling an octopus into a mayonnaise jar. <laughs> but I have since changed my analogy because of this book. Now I tend to think of it as juggling chainsaws. Only the chainsaws are on fire and you're blindfolded. <laughs> because it's very, very hard. And it was so hard to pull the threads together. And the two women are different. We're seeing them at different points in their lives. We have young Anastasia. We have older Anna. And we're looking at what happens to a life when you've spent your whole life trying to prove who you are. What kind of person do you become if nobody believes you? What kind of person do you become if you have to fight for the right to your own name? Those are the kinds of questions that I love, and those are the kinds of questions that I wanted to explore in this particular novel. But at the end of the day, it is a mystery. And we want to know. And I believe we're still fascinated with this story. There's a reason why people are drawn to this mystery. Everywhere I've gone over the last month, people have told me, I've always been obsessed with Anastasia's story. And whether or not you believe the claims of Anna Anderson, there's one thing that I think is absolutely true. She is responsible in many ways for keeping that legacy alive. First, it was her claims. First, it was the articles and the newspapers and the court cases. And then it was that movie in 1956 with Ingrid Bergman. And then it was another movie in 1996, the animated 
version that all of the little girls now are obsessed with. And I don't know. It's, it's worth asking whether we would remember Anastasia the way that we do if Anna Anderson had not fought for so long for the right to that name. I asked a friend recently if she could name any of the other Romanov daughters. We know there were five children. And she kind of looked at me and she blinked. She didn't know Tatiana and she didn't know Olga and she didn't know Maria and she didn't know Alexei. She only knew Anastasia. And it's a valid question to ask why. What makes Anastasia different? Why do we remember her when we don't remember the others? They had the same parents. They went into captivity together. They were part of the same moment in history, but only one of them has taken on legendary proportions. And at the heart of it, that's what I was Anastasia answers. Why her and not the others? And is this woman really who she says she, that she is? And I promise, I don't leave you hanging. I do give an answer at the end. Um, we're a smaller group tonight, so what I thought I would do is I wanted to read just one page. Actually, it's really three paragraphs to you. And then I thought I would take some questions if you have them. That's always my favorite part of these events. Everywhere I've gone, people have asked the best questions. People have asked questions that I wouldn't have thought to answer otherwise. So I'd like to do that as we wrap up. But first, I will read just a little bit to you. Um, if you have attended many of these events, you'll often hear an author say that their characters speak to them and that they just have to write down what their characters are saying. Mine never do. Mine are all mute. <laughs> they are the most complicated, frustrating characters on earth. Nobody ever talks to me. I just have to follow them around and try to figure out what they're doing. With one exception. The only time a character has ever spoken to me is in the passage I'm about to read to you. And it came to me on the first morning that I sat down to work on this novel, once I'd finally realized that I would not be writing about Alcatraz at all, and that I was committed to the Romanovs. And there's this really overwhelming moment every time I begin a novel where I sit at my desk, and the children have gone off, and the house is quiet, and the dog is fed, and the litter box is empty, and I can't do any more laundry or any more dishes or find anything else to clean, and I actually have to get to work. And I find myself overwhelmed with the idea that I have to take nothing and turn it into something. And how do you begin? That's always a really big leap in my mind. So I sat at my desk that day and I kind of closed my eyes. I was just trying to find a point of entry. And I heard a character talking. So I wrote down what she said. And it ended up being the opening for this novel. And it didn't change a single word throughout the whole process. And I thought I would read it to you. Fair warning. If I tell you what happened that night in Ekaterinburg, I will have to unwind my memory, all the twisted coils, and lay it in your palm. It will be the gift and the curse I bestow upon you, a confession for which you may never forgive me. Are you ready for that? 
Can you hold this truth in your hand and not crush it like the rest of them? Because I do not think you can. I do not think you are brave enough. But, like so many others through the years, you have asked, am I truly Anastasia Romanov, a beloved daughter, a revered icon, a Russian Grand Duchess? Or am I an imposter, a fraud, a liar, the thief of another woman's legacy? That is for you to decide, of course. Countless others have rendered their verdict. Now it is your turn. But if you want the truth, you must pay attention. Do not daydream or drift off. Do not speak or interrupt. You will have your answers. But first, you must understand why the years have brought me to this point and why such loss has made the journey necessary. When I am finished, and only then, will you have the right to tell me who I am. Are you ready? Good. Let us begin. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Ariel Lahan and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Laha knew where her novel would end when she first sat down to write. When I initially started this novel, I planned at the very beginning before I got too far into it to tell both stories chronologically. But as I began to research more and to write more, I got about 100 pages into it, and I realized there was a moment coming in the story that wouldn't work if both stories ticked along from beginning to end. It would only work and have the impact that I needed it to if I told half of it backward so that they can collide in this really intense manner. So what I did is I compiled 100 pages where both of them were chronological, and then I compiled the other version that I called the insane version, where half of it was backward. And I sent them both to my editor and my literary agent, and I asked them to tell me which they thought was more powerful. And it was a unanimous decision. Everybody loved the backward narrative. But stories are these really living, fluid things. I can only control them to a point. I am the type of writer where I love to research and I love to plot and I want to know how everything is going to go. But you can only know so much going into it. There's a point where you just have to dive in and let the story speak to you. And it was really fun. It was really fun to see those subconscious things begin to weave together and connect and to be surprised by the story and even though I knew where I was going and I knew how I wanted to get there, there were still revelations about character and history and detail and clues that surprised me along the way. This question comes from an audience member asking how Lahan fills in gaps in the narrative where historical records may not exist, while staying true to the actual events of her characters' lives. 
in a way, I feel like it's actually very freeing. I work best under the constraint of history. There are things that are established. Joseph Crater disappeared on August 6, 1930. The Hindenburg crashed in 1937. The Romanovs were executed in 1918. There are things you cannot deviate from, but there are always cracks. There are always little things in between that aren't recorded. There are conversations and there are motives. And so I always stick 100% to the things that we know for sure. But I build my stories in the unknown and in the relationships between. And there are a handful of times where I've had to deviate from the truth. Like for instance, the Romanovs had two tutors that went with them into captivity. The children remained in school the whole time. Poor things, they're under arrest and having to be in school. <laughs> Awful. But in a story like this, where there is a cast of hundreds in real life, there comes a point where it's just untenable to have that many characters in a novel. So we had to combine the two tutors, and I talk about that in my author's note, which you're not allowed to read first, by the way. So if I deviate from history, or if I have to make a choice for the sake of story or structure, I will always clarify that in the end. Um, I never want people to think that I'm making history up. I often say that my novels are my version of what could have happened. Another audience member asked Lahan, what her process was like for writing a novel in a non-chronological order. What I did when I finally decided on the backward structure is I plotted everything out. So chapter one begins with Anna Anderson, and she's at the end of her life. Chapter two is Anastasia Romanov. And I sat down and I kind of wrote out chapter by chapter what needed to happen. And then I wrote them consecutively, so I'd write Anna's chapter, and then I'd write Anastasia's chapter, and then Anna's, and then Anastasia's. But I could only do that because I knew exactly where I was going with each one. The one exception to that is there are occasionally days in the writing life where everything is awful, and I have picked the wrong job, and I am a talentless hack who should have pursued being a greeter at Walmart. I mean, anything other than what I'm doing right now. and. Those are the days that I really, really struggle to write the next thing. So what I will do in that instance is I will look at my list of scenes or my list of chapters and I will pick one that I'm really looking forward to, one that I think will be a lot of fun. Because whether I feel like writing or not, I have to get words on the page and the deadline still exists. I tell my children all the time that deadline is actually a military term where they shoot you dead if you cross over it. And I tell them if they want their mother to still be alive and here, they have to let me finish because I will die otherwise. At the moment, I think they, they, I think, they think that I'm serious, so they're pretty respectful of the deadline. This question asker inquires if other people step forward claiming to be Anastasia or her sisters. There are a handful of people throughout history that claimed to be Maria. There are some that claimed to be Alexei. I think it has to do with a number of reasons. For instance, um, Anna Anderson passed away in the 80s, but the remains of the Romanovs were not found until the mid-90s. I think 96 is when they found them, but there were five. Two of them were missing. <clears throat> and there is some argument to this day about whether 
the missing daughter was Maria or Anastasia, but Alexei was gone as well. And so even into recent history, there was room for doubt. But I do think Anna Anderson, like I said, whether you believe her claims or not, was unique among all of the people that claimed to be a surviving Romanov because her claims were so consistent and they were so long and they caught the public's imagination. Like I said, that Ingrid Bergman movie cemented her as a public figure. And there were not as many, there were not as many claims to the best. Oh, don't quote me on this. I have since begun researching another novel, so the hard drive is starting to get a little bit deleted. But to the best of my knowledge, there are not any well-known claimants who claim to be Olga or Tatiana. It is Anastasia. It is that youngest daughter. And if you study history, you're well aware that Nicholas and Alexander were terrible rulers. They were awful. They single-handedly squandered one of the biggest, longest-running empires on Earth. And you can absolutely argue that they committed crimes, and you can argue that they should have been arrested or brought to trial for those crimes. But nobody, nobody can argue that five innocent children should have been led into a basement and murdered along with their parents. Nobody can say that. And it's that tragedy, that sense of the loss of innocence that has held on for so long because the human mind can't wrap it. You can't wrap it yourself around that. And innocent people die every day. Every day, innocent young girls die. But so rarely in human history have there been young, innocent girls that famous, that well-known on the world stage be murdered for the crimes of their parents. And it's that sense of injustice and tragedy that has another little hook, another reason why people kind of latch onto the story. And what Anna Anderson did for the public at large, the world at large, really, is she made room in our imaginations for hope. She gave us the ability to go, oh, maybe there could be something of a happy ending. Maybe one of them made it out. And that's a really, really powerful thing. And then you add decades and decades and decades onto that. It captures the imagination of the world. Our next question is about Ariel Lahan's Alcatraz novel. Alcatraz is still there. Um, it's actually not going to be the next book. I know, I'm kind of stunned at myself because when I was writing Anastasia, I thought, it's okay. It's okay, boys, I'll get back to you shortly. Um, I think, fingers crossed, knock on wood, it will be the novel I do after the next one I'm doing. This question is about what Lahan is working on now. I have been forbidden to tell. It is the first time <laughs> in my whole career I've not been able to tell what I'm writing about next. I can say that it was just finalized about a week and a half ago. Um, it will exist in the world. It is another historical mystery based on a real person. Um, this particular figure is not as well known as Anastasia, but I believe she should be a household name. 
Hopefully I can help with that. An audience member asked if Lahan reads to her children as her parents did for her. My, it's one of the many things I have taken from my mother. I've read to them from the time they were itty bitty. Even my teenagers now, if I tell them it's time to read, <clears throat> they will come to the living room and they will sit down and everybody gets a blanket and I have them recite the reading rules, which are threefold, if I can remember them. No asking questions until the end, which I'm a huge fan of asking questions, obviously, but I'm trying to teach them that their questions will be answered if they listen and they pay attention. And it's just a skill for reading in general, especially reading mysteries. If you pay attention, all of your questions will be answered. Um, cannot leave the room. You can roll around. You can jump up and down. You can do the splits, but you can't leave the room. And please, for the love of all that's holy, do not fart while I'm reading to you. <laughs> because they're boys, and it's like a competition with them. And I end up having to leave the room. <laughs> so at which point they then think this is great fun, and they start adding other reading rules of their own, like don't pick your nose, and it devolves from there pretty quickly. But I read to them not as often as I should. I was actually thinking the other day, we need to get back into it. So I'm gonna make a list of the books I want to read to them this year. We've actually um, been doing audiobooks as well. And so over Christmas, we listened to The Westing Game, which is an all-time favorite of mine by Ellen Raskin. I love that novel. And we listened to The Magician's Elephant by Kate DiCamillo, which is magic. We took a 15-hour road trip to Texas over Christmas, so we had lots of car time. Another audience member inquires about the response to one of Lahan's first novels, The Wife, The Maid, and The Mistress. Oh my goodness, you don't know the story. Let me tell you a story. This really happened and has, in a way, changed the way that I write. I'm actually glad you brought that up. When, um, when you write about people from history that really existed, you kind of run into a little bit of an issue because I never want... I never want to defame them. I have to remember that these are real people who really lived and they have families and children and grandchildren and I want to be respectful of that. I don't believe that I have to paint somebody well if history regards them otherwise, but I do think I have to be honest and I have to remember that there are people in the world still living who love them. So. When I was writing The Wife, The Maid, and The Mistress, I actually was kind of relieved because I thought, none of these people have children. I can kind of do what I want to. Joseph Crater and his wife never had children. Uh, the maid in that particular novel, her name was Maria. There is only one reference to her in a newspaper that anyone has been able to find, and we don't even know if the name she gave is correct. And then The Mistress was a woman that goes by the name of Ritzy, Sally Lou Ritz in the book. And she went missing in the months after Judge Crater did. She disappeared and up until recently was still listed as a missing person by the Charlie Project. So I thought this is great. I can just write the novel. I can do what I want. I can tell it how I need to. And no one's going to come knocking on my door. <laughs> they missed last words. Four months after the novel came out, I got home from dinner with my husband and I checked my email, and there was an email that said, 
you know, subject was just the wife, the maid, and the mistress. And I get emails occasionally, and sometimes they're great fun, and sometimes they're not. <laughs> um, this particular one began, Dear Mrs. Lahan, I'd like to know where you did your research for your novel, The Wife, the Maid, and the Mistress, because the showgirl you wrote about is my grandmother. And that was when I closed the computer and went into total body failure and started imagining all kinds of terrible things about getting sued. And then I think, oh my gosh, I wrote that about her grandmother. <laughs> or what if she's lying? What if this person is crazy? Any number of things. And it took me about two hours of a minor panic attack before I was able to open my computer again. And I read the rest of the email. And this woman went on to describe how her mother, her, sorry, her grandmother was Sally Lou Ritz, how she'd left New York in 1930, how she'd moved to California, how she'd married, had children, and never one time spoke about her past. None of her family ever knew about her life prior to 1930, and when she died in 2010, on her deathbed, she goes, oh yeah, by the way, my name's not Diane. It's Sarah Louise Ritzy. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> and then she was gone. And her family was stunned, stupefied. They, they couldn't believe it. And so they did what anybody would do, and they went to Google. And if you type in Sarah Louise Ritzy, you find Sally Lou Ritz, which was her nickname. And then you find Judge Crater. And you find that this woman, this dancer, was with the judge on the night he disappeared. You find that she was caught up in one of the biggest missing persons cases of the 20th century. But that's all they knew until 2014 when my novel was published. And she emails me. And she just wanted to know what I knew and where I found it. And so we corresponded a good bit that summer. I talked to her, and I talked to her father, who was Ritzy's son. And they sent me pictures. And turns out, <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and they match the one known picture of Ritzy that you can find. Turns out she left, and she was a professional competitive ballroom dancer for any number of years. And this is the thing that kills me. She kept a massive scrapbook for 50 plus years. It was a diary. It was a scrapbook. She never let anyone see it. She put in pictures. She would write in it every day. It's where she recorded her memories. And she burned it about three months before she died. And to this day, no one has ever seen it. And I think it's proof that my version of the story is real. <laughs> but her family, her family had no idea. And so I was able to tell them the parts that I made up and the parts that were fact. And we've kind of maintained a friendship ever since. But it taught me with that novel that you're not writing about imaginary people, you're writing about real people. And with my second novel, it was based on the last flight of the Hindenburg, and there were 90 people on board. So I have expected to be inundated by Germans <laughs> saying, you wrote about my family member. And that didn't happen. But what did happen when I was on book tour I was in Fairhope, Alabama at a little bookstore called Page and Palette. And I walked in for my event, and the manager goes, Ariel, come here. So I walk up and introduce myself, and there was this elderly gentleman. He was about 
yay high and he had silver hair and she's like Ariel this is Carl like hi Carl well he'd been in this bookstore the day before and he saw a poster for my book and he saw that it had the Hindenburg on the cover so he bought it and he came back for that event that night to tell me that when he was 13 years old his father had taken him to tour the Hindenburg in Germany right before its last flight they sort of had an open house and people could come walk through it and touch it and explore it and it changed his life he became an engineer because of walking through the Hindenburg that one day and it was one of the most gratifying things in my writing career when he looked at me and he said you got it right and it's the thing you want to do because this is history I can't go there the Hindenburg is gone I spent months pouring over schematics I knew that ship inside and out I looked at every picture I read every book about it but I wasn't there I couldn't smell it I couldn't touch it I just had to do my best and he said I got it right and so that was great fun um, so far nobody's <laughs> yet hopefully nobody comes and says I'm Anastasia this question is about how Ariel Lahan studied to be a writer. And as much as my childhood sounds like Laura Ingalls meets the hippie movement, and it's great fun to talk about, and people are always a little astounded, one of the harder parts about it is when you grow up like that, the other reality is abject poverty. I grew up in an area of the country that literally had the worst school system in the nation. A few years before I went to this particular high school, it was the worst ranked high school in the entire nation that had an over 50% dropout level. Those that stayed in were either pregnant or addicted to something by the time they graduated. That's where I came from. There was, there was no scenario in which I could ever go to college. Our counselors in high school just tried to get everybody out. College never even came up. It, it didn't even occur to me until I was a grown woman that I could have gone, that I could have gotten a scholarship, and that I probably would have loved it. So what I did instead is I graduated early, and then I left home, and I traveled, and I worked, and I went all over the country, and then I went all over the world, and I took care of myself. And I continued to write, and I continued to read, and I am the most stubborn person you will ever meet in your life. And so when I set my mind to something, I do it. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And then I got married and proceeded to have four babies in five years. And writing became the thing that kept me sane. Writing was the thing that was mine. It had nothing to do with my husband and it had nothing to do with my children. And it had nothing to do with my home. It was my best form of self-care. And this is the thing I have always wanted to do. And I was blessed with a mother who told me I could and a teacher who told me I could. And then finally, a husband who took me seriously long before I ever made a dime doing it. He's home with our kids now, actually. He's got them on the bus this morning and he's shuttling them to and from baseball right now and feeding them dinner. So, long answer, long way of saying, um, I taught myself, which is an odd way of going about it, but it worked. It worked. <laughs> I figure if I can do it, anybody can. The last question of the night 
comes from an audience member wondering what Lahan's writing process looks like. For that, okay, so for the wife, the maid, and the mistress, I had four boys, five and under. No. Oh, how old was my oldest? Okay, six years ago, he was nine. Okay, so I had lots of little kids, and most of them were not in school. So I wrote really, really early. There was about six months where I got up at five o'clock in the morning, and I wrote until everybody woke up. And then there was another six months where I stayed up really, really, really late, and I was just perpetually tired. These days, though, there is this big magic yellow thing that comes to the stop sign outside my house every morning. And it takes them away for seven hours. And it brings them back to me, and I don't have to leave my house. That's how I do it now. It was much harder then. And there are seasons for everybody's life. But to answer your question specifically, so I write in my office, but I, the process for me in writing historical fiction, so I don't know anything about the Romanovs when I'm beginning this novel. I order every book I can possibly find on the Romanovs, every biography. I don't get them from the library. I'm sorry, librarians, but I write in my books, and librarians tend to frown on that. <laughs> so I have to buy them, and I have to keep them. And what I do initially, I will literally sit down with a highlighter and I will begin writing. So with The Wife, The Maiden, Mistress, I'm just, I'm just noticing things that I find personally interesting. This is three books ago now, so I have to think about the things. Um, I think about missing papers. I think about missing judges and showgirls and mobs. I think about maids and police officers and detectives and Tammany Halls and bits and pieces of history that I find interesting. And I will literally go through with a highlighter. I've done this with every book, just details. With my second book, I was fascinated that the Hindenburg had a smoking lounge. Who does it? It was lifted by hydrogen. That's combustible. Like, that's a terrible idea. But they had a room on board where you could smoke. Um, I was fascinated that the cabin boy was given a a watch, a stopwatch by his grandfather. I was fascinated that the junior navigator was also the mailman, or the postmaster, sorry, on board. And with every book, I just, I begin highlighting, and I think, oh, that's interesting, huh, what do you know? With the Romanovs, they're sewing jewels into their corsets, and a woman is found in a canal, and they have all these pets. And when I'm done reading all of my books, when I'm done researching, I will literally make a list of everything that I highlighted because it was interesting to me. And that's the heart of every story, is having these really personal, real details. And then I will weave them together around the overall story that I know for sure. At the beginning, it's a highlighter in books, and then it moves to note cards. And then finally, when I get to the stage where I'm actually ready to begin writing, I use a writing program called Scrivener. It's similar to Microsoft Word, but a little bit more user-friendly in terms of keeping research, keeping track of research. I can have everything. When I send in a completed manuscript, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of footnotes. And they obviously don't make it to the finished draft. But every detail I find from any resource, I footnote and I add it there. And it's typically for the copy editors so that they know that I know what I'm talking about. Because otherwise, they're going to go, are you sure? 
and I will have to say yes, and then I will have to write back and note it anyway. So. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library Golden Valley event with Ariel Lahan. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Patricia Hampel at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. Patricia Hampel is a highly acclaimed memoirist best known for her debut, A Romantic Education, and award-winning Virgin Time and The Florist Daughter. Her newest, The Art of a Wasted Day, is part travelogue, part spirited defense of leisure time in the face of our ever more busy and stressful modern lifestyle. It debuted in April. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.